0: Let's pray. Father, we have already spent some time in being before your throne in worship and praying to you in song, considering your attributes, singing about them, rejoicing in who you are. And also, we have voiced our devotion to you. Our commitment has already been stated in the first part of this service. Lord, we also realize that you have made a commitment to us, and that is to conform us into the image of your Son, to shape our characters so that we would more and more reflect who you are. That is your commitment for us, and we ask you, Lord, to do that a little more tonight as we consider the truths of Scripture. We're so grateful, Lord, that you accept us, that you love us the way we are, but that you love us too much to leave us the way we are, and that you desire us to grow and that you enable us to grow. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, we ask that you would speak clearly to us, your word. And give us understanding, insight, that we might know what it is you are saying to us as you break the bread of life for us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Now in closing off the book, we remember that Luke was a doctor. And being a doctor, he was someone who was interested in accuracy. That's the way he was trained, even a first century doctor it's obvious the way he wrote, was interested in preserving an accurate history of Jesus Christ. So he begins the book by saying, I have taken it in hand to provide an accurate and ordered description of what we believe in, the things that are certainly or believed in certainty among us. And so he sets in order the things about the crucifixion, He notes certain things that others don't note. And then on into the resurrection in chapter 24. And we ended last week in verse 12. And we pick it up now with one of the most interesting cameos that only Luke provides in the gospel. And that is where Jesus comes incognito to two men who are walking about seven miles outside of Jerusalem, having a conversation, Jesus walks alongside of them and gets in on the conversation, and it's an exciting story. It was Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens who noted that a lie can make its way halfway around the earth in the time that truth is still lacing up her boots, that people are more apt to believe that which is odd and unusual and fantastic and slow to believe the truth, slow in heart to believe the truth. And of course, we see evidence of that all the time, don't we? Ever go into a supermarket and see how many people are interested in getting the National Enquirer, Star Magazine? I mean, absolutely the worst type of journalism available, where there's absolutely no integrity in the reporting, where they have babies born from Mars, and uh, presidents taken up in spaceships, and babies born with eight heads. and. I mean, the, the weirdest stories. And the people go, ooh, wow, that's awesome. Back in the 1800s, there was a fellow by the name of Ernest Renan. And he was a, a scholar. He studied. He was well-educated. And he became a priest. But he fell into studying liberal scholarship and became a liberal scholar himself. And Ernest Renan, or Renan as it's probably better pronounced, became influenced by the writings of Hegel and Immanuel Kant and started viewing the gospel stories through their perspective. And he wrote a book on the life of Jesus, and he dismissed the resurrection as a fictitious account because of the hallucinations of people who loved him so much that their minds manufactured appearances of Jesus Christ. That's how he explained it away. Now, in his time, normally if somebody wrote an account like he did, it would have been dismissed and uh, the community would not have published it. But instead of being booed or hissed, his little book sold 60,000 copies in one month. And he was promoted to the administrator of the College in France that he was teaching at. Then, back in 1966, in more recent history, you'll probably be more familiar with the writings of a Jewish historian named Hugh Schoenfield. Remember the book, The Passover Plot? Well, Schoenfield's premise was this He said, Jesus was aware of the predictions of a suffering Messiah and a resurrected Messiah. And so, he got together with his guys and plotted all of the events of his crucifixion and resurrection. And he got together with Joseph of Arimathea and a couple other guys, and supposedly he was to be given a drug that would make him almost dead in kind of a a stupor where his heartbeat would slow down, and uh, he would then uh, feign the resurrection and, with their help, move the stone and, and get out. It was all a plot, he said, because he knew the predictions and he tried to fulfill them by manipulating people and manipulating events. He said most of the resurrection appearances were a simple case of mistaken identity. People saw somebody that looked like Jesus and they said he was risen. Now, he didn't really make much headway in the academic community, but once the media got a hold of his book, he sold a hundred thousand copies in five months. Now Luke is writing after interviewing many eyewitnesses, he said. Not just getting it from one source, but no doubt interviewing many people who had seen what happened. And of course we know from the New Testament that it wasn't just one person or the eleven disciples that saw Jesus after his crucifixion, but Paul the once skeptical rabbi, remember, said that there were over 500 different people that saw Jesus risen from the dead. That it was not a pipe dream, that it was not a hallucination, and that it was well attested. In fact, Luke, in his follow up sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, makes that very, very plain. So it wasn't a case of mistaken identity. But this hinge of the Christian faith, the resurrection, was to change the world, was to change life in Jerusalem, was to make life now not only very exciting for the early church but very difficult because they're about to be kicked out of Jerusalem within a few weeks of this episode. How did the people of that time respond to the resurrection favorably? Did they go, oh my, that's so exciting that your Savior has risen from the dead. Man, that's awesome. Hang around and tell us more. Well, we know that 5,000 did on the day of Pentecost. They got so excited they received Christ right there in the Temple Mount. But it says in the same episode that as Peter is preaching the gospel from Solomon's porch, that the Sadducees who deny the resurrection, the chief priests, And the temple guards seized them because they preached in the temple and they taught the resurrection from the dead. They incarcerated them, they beat them, and they said, don't say this anymore. Then there was the case of Paul the Apostle who persecuted the early church. He was convinced when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. A hardened skeptic, an antagonist, a persecutor of the church, radically transformed as Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, and he recounts his own salvation. He's standing before Herod Agrippa and Caesarea in that huge amphitheater that some of you will see in May when we go to Israel. And as he's recounting his testimony, and he says, I am standing here before you, King Agrippa, and I'm telling you only the things that the prophets have written long ago that Jesus the Christ must suffer, die, and be resurrected from the dead, and give light to the Jewish people and to all the Gentiles. At that point, Festus jumped up from his seat, pointed his finger at Paul and said, Your much learning is driving you nuts. The idea of a resurrection. You're mad. Paul said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of soundness and truth, for these things were not done in a corner." As if to imply that most of the Middle East was familiar with the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have gotten into it in chapter 24, how the women came and the disciples were disbelieving. In verse 11, their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. Okay, that's where we left off. The disciples were unbelieving at this point. Unbelief still persists today. The philosopher David Hume, and if you've taken a philosophy class in college, you're familiar with David Hume when he was postulating his philosophies against God, against Jesus, against the miraculous, against the Bible, he predicted. He said, I see the twilight of Christianity. He couldn't tell the difference between a sunset and a sunrise. It was just getting started. He predicted that within 25 years Christianity would be an extinct religion. What he didn't know is that. After his death, of course he couldn't know that, could he? But after his death, the first meeting of the Bible Society in Edinburgh met in his home. The man who predicted the demise of Christianity. His home was eventually used as a center for the distribution of the New Testament throughout the British Isles and the world. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? Hume is dead. Jesus is alive. And Christianity lives. Why? Because of a resurrected Savior. And it is that event that marks Christianity apart from all other belief systems, all other religions. Buddha, Muhammad, and all others left fine teachings. But that's all. They died. They kicked the bucket. Their history. No power behind what they said. Jesus spoke. He died. He rose. And he is alive from the dead. And that makes all the difference in the world. And tonight we read about two guys, two disciples, unknown to us except we know by reading this that one of them was named Cleopas. Followers of Jesus, their hopes were down and Jesus comes alongside and changes their condition and makes them have spiritual heartburn. That's the great need today. Oh, that God would give you heartburn. The right kind, not the bad kind. Spiritual heartburn. They say as Jesus comes, Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures as he spoke to us along the way? There's a great need for that today, that passion in following Jesus. Now, we live in a very sophisticated day and age. There's Christian bookstores today. There weren't any Christian bookstores at the time this event took place. There's Christian radio stations. There weren't any Christian radio stations. There wasn't even radio invented. We have Bibles in every conceivable translation and color. There weren't Bibles back then. We have computers. They didn't have computers. We have more equipment and machinery. You would think that, my, with all of the equipment we have and all of the resources, we ought to be the godliest, most passionate group of any group that ever lived of Christians. And yet with all of the sophistication and programs and buildings and so forth, there seems to be an insipidness, a flatness about so many who call themselves Christians. Whereas these early Christians knew so little, but as Jesus comes and speaks to them, Their hearts burn within them. Spiritual heartburn. Now let's get into it in verse 13. Well, let's start in verse 12. But Peter arose, ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem now, When we're in Israel, you might say, where is Emmaus? And I will tell you, I don't know. And everybody who has studied this must say, I don't know. There's four to seven different locations that may be Emmaus. It was obviously a little village. Archeology span hasn't given to us the exact location, but it doesn't matter. These guys are having a walk, and they're having a talk. They talked together of all the things which had happened. I would venture to say that in the experience of these two men, these two disciples, they were at their lowest time ever. The things that had happened in Jerusalem the last few days, all of their hopes were shattered. Jesus, whom they thought would redeem Israel from the Romans, establish a new age, a new kingdom, with Israel being predominant, didn't happen. All they know is the one they hoped in is dead. And their hearts are broken, and they're trying to sort through it in their minds. Those who research death, called fanatologists, people like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and others, say that there's a whole host of emotions that happen when somebody loses somebody close to them in death. The first emotion is generally denial. No, I don't believe it, it couldn't have happened. It's impossible this happens to other people. This can't be happening to me. The next emotion usually is bargaining. Oh, God, please, please bring them back. Don't let them die. I I promise, please. The next emotion is generally anger, anger at God, anger at people, anger at the person who has died. How could they leave me? All sorts of emotions. Usually after this phase comes deep depression. As it finally settles in, that person that they love is dead. After a few days, depression sets in. And then eventually, acceptance follows. Sometimes it is sooner for some than others, but acceptance comes and eventually hope after that. They see the light at the end of the tunnel and eventually they get lifted out of that dark period, though there's always a scar. I've noticed many times these emotions overlap. It's not a distinct phasing. It's like, okay, where are they? Oh, they're after the denial. They're kind of in. Sometimes it's all together. And people who suffer like this need time to vent it. And it is very unhealthy for Christians to slap others on the back and say, Cheer up. They're in heaven, man. Yeah, they may be in heaven, but I'm left on earth and I miss them desperately. And we need to, in love, let those emotions be vented among us. That's what they're doing. They're just discussing all that has happened. The lowest time of their lives. Now, as we read on, Jesus comes walking incognito. They talked together about all the things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. It says, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Now, this happens a few times. Here it says their eyes were restrained, but there's a few other occasions where those who were closest to Jesus didn't recognize him. We read that Mary saw Jesus after his resurrection and thought he was a gardener, even though Jesus spoke. And it was only until he said her name, probably the special way that he said it, Mary, that's Jesus. Or at the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21. They're out there fishing not far from the shore. And Jesus stands on the shore. And says, children, do you have any food? Did you catch anything? He said, no, not yet. It says they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Now that's his own disciples. And even when they came to the shore. And they saw him face to face. The scripture says, none of them dared ask him if he was the Lord, for they just knew it. So there was something going on where there was not quite a recognition physically of Jesus. Now, William Barclay, whom I respect for his scholarship, but he was very liberal, and he came up with really lame excuses on miracles, said, probably these two who were walking to Emmaus saw Jesus who was walking where the sun was setting behind him. And the glare of the sun in the eyes of these twos from Emmaus, you know, they couldn't quite make it out who it was. They just, you know, the sun, the glare. But here it says their eyes were restrained. Of course, there's another reason why they didn't recognize him. They didn't expect him. They didn't say, yeah, third day should be rising any moment. he will come tooling along. he will just hang out here. He'll be, he'll be around. The last thing they expected was death followed by resurrection even though Jesus had predicted that. But I think there may be another reason, at least in a couple of the cases. Isaiah 52 in predicting what the Messiah would go through tells us that his face, his visage was marred more than any man. He suffered that to the extent that they pulled out chunks of his beard which no doubt left him looking not like they were used to uh, seeing him like. In fact, when he was brought the second time before Pilate after being beaten, he said in Latin, ecce homo, behold the man, as if in astonishment, look, this is that man, doesn't even look the same. It could be that after the resurrection, we know that he still had the marks of crucifixion on him. He said to Thomas, look. Here's the prince in my hands, my side, my feet. It could be that after the resurrection, still bearing the scars, the marks of the crucifixion, he was not recognizable to them. But whatever reason it was, they didn't recognize him. Their eyes were restrained, at least in this case. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now, this question, is literally put this way, what kind of heated and animated conversation is this that you're having? They were at an all-time low, but probably they're going back, quoting the Old Testament Scriptures, remembering what Jesus said, awfully confused, trying to piece these things together, and they're having this heated, animated argument even. They're experiencing that anger at what had happened. And notice that you have with one another, and you are sad. Jesus saw their sadness. And then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here or there in these days? First of all, I want you to notice how Jesus approaches them with a question. He could have walked up and said, I know why you guys are sad. You guys are full of unbelief. Shame on you, creeps. Because Jesus did know why. But that is not Jesus' style. That is not his method. Rather than coming with a rebuke, at first he comes with a very patient, loving, gracious question. What are you guys talking about? You're so sad. Jesus knew what they were talking about. He didn't need an answer for information. But a typical method of Jesus is to draw out the confession from themselves, to get them to admit what they think, to bring it out in the open, to voice it before God. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, he said, who do men say that I am? Now did Jesus not know who people said he was? He knew everything. He could have given them a theological rundown on all of the various positions held in modern-day Israel on the Messiah. But he asked them, Who do men say that I am? Well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet. Really? Neat. Who do you say that I am? And he's getting them, he's drawing them out to that confession. Jesus is so patient with you. I'm losing my patience with his who's up here. Excuse me. Okay, let's get back into the scriptures. (laughs) Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Can you pick up on the humor of that question? Don't you know what has happened in Jerusalem? Are you a stranger? He was the one that it happened to. Now this implies something important. It speaks to an issue. When Cleopas asked this question, he asked it incredulously as if to imply that the crucifixion and the resurrection were so well known as events in Palestine and Israel that they were known virtually everywhere by everyone who is in the general vicinity. Why is that important? Because, believe it or not, there are still a few people who say, oh, Jesus never really even existed. He wasn't even a historical figure. Why, all we have is these zealous New Testament documents. We don't have any extra biblical sources, real historical sources by people who weren't sympathetic to the Christian cause. And as for all we know, Jesus was made up by them. He never really existed. And that's bogus. We have Cornelius Tacitus. We have Suetonius. We have Flavius Josephus. All who were not Christians, all who wrote from a Roman cause or a Jewish cause about what happened to Jesus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian. He was not sympathetic toward the Christians. He worked for Rome. He was considered even a traitor by the Jews because he was providing historical records for Rome. And here is his account of the life of Jesus from his own writings. He said, There was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those who loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day." That's from his book called Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus. And there are other writers who were not biblical writers who testified to that fact of the death and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So are you the only stranger? Have you not known the things which happen in these days? Everybody knows what's happening. It'd be sort of like you standing on the street corner and you're discussing the future of the space program only to have somebody come up who's been listening and say, you mean to tell me somebody's actually been to the moon? When did that happen? That's what it was like as Cleopas heard Jesus say, what are you talking about? And notice, he said to them, verse 19, what things? I love that. Jesus is at the heart of the things that have happened. He goes, what? <laughs> He's drawing out a confession. He wants to hear it from their own experience. What things? And they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Notice this. Who was a prophet. That is a past tense statement. It is something that speaks of a past tense experience. Not he is a prophet. He was a a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Notice, we had hoped, or we were hoping in him. Again, it is a past tense kind of a thing. It's not, you know, we're anticipating a resurrection. We're hoping that he'll still be with us. Their hopes had died when the stone rolled over the tomb. Their future was closed. We were hoping in him that he was going to redeem Israel. Now, why did Jesus die on the cross? To redeem people. Some of you had it right. To redeem Israel. To redeem the world. And here they're saying... Oh, we were really hoping that he'd redeem Israel. Well, that's why he came. But why were they so sad? Because their view of redemption was very different than Jesus' view of redemption. They wanted the immediate. They wanted the temporary. They wanted freedom from Rome being the boss. Jesus came to deal with what issue? The sin issue. The redemption of sin was at the heart of his coming to the cross, of his being born into the world. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. I don't think much has changed since that day. I think there's a lot of people who aren't really interested in freedom from the guilt of sin as much as freedom to do whatever they want to do and reach their maximum potential in life. Oh God, that's what I want you to do. Redeem me from my bad self-esteem and help me to just achieve all that I want to achieve. Instead of freedom and being redeemed from sin. There's a lot of people who seek God for his gifts, not God for the sake of God. They don't want the giver. They want the gifts that the giver gives. And when God doesn't give what they want, they get very downcast, very sad. Their expectations that they had in following God have been shattered. And their relationship like these guys is past tense. We were hoping or we had hoped. Have you ever analyzed your disappointment? Think of a disappointment you've had in life. Why were you disappointed? Well, probably because someone or something failed to meet what you expected. You didn't expect that to happen. And because you had your plans set out, those plans weren't met, that other person didn't keep their end of the bargain, the things didn't happen like you planned, you walk away very disappointed. Now, when disappointment sets in, it happens, by the way, in a lot of areas, marriage is a biggie. Oh, I just know marriage. Once I get married, that white picket fence, and everything's going to be so blissful, my life will just, it'll be, don't have to worry anymore. Oh, those are shattered hopes for so many people. Maybe the other person failed. Maybe things happened in the relationship that caused a disintegration. The relationship is being fractured, it's torn apart. Then, as the expectations haven't been met, there is a disappointment that sets in. There is then a cooling of passion that sets in. Cooling of the zeal. And even a bitterness and an anger. And a waning. Well, let's go on and see what what happens, how Jesus deals with it besides that, it's the third day since these things had happened. Yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body, and they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels and said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. Now, as Cleopas keeps talking, he's digging a deeper hole for himself. He's only indicting himself spiritually. Because I would say, Cleopas, if you had women do it and disciples go see it and they said they saw angels, why don't you check it out? Instead of living in the past tense and, oh, we hoped, oh, it's over, check it out. And one of the things that bugs me about unbelievers who are pseudo-intellectual in their cutting down of Christianity, oh, Christianity this and that, is that they're so weak in any kind of intellectual argument against it, they just, ah, it's a bunch of junk. Check it out. And when you honestly check it out, like so many others, you will be so astonished at the evidence for the case of Christianity. And you will understand what the scripture means when it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And as Josh McDowell has often said, the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind cannot accept. And it was when he saw the honest evidence for Christianity and checking it out that his heart began to rejoice as he saw fulfilled prophecy. The case for manuscript evidence of the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Cleopas, you know, is dismissing this, this whole thing. Let me read it to you how I personally think he said it. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us they didn't find his body they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive you know i think that he's just sort of dismissing all these teary-eyed emotional creatures and they even had the disciples buy into their theory notice what jesus does now in verse 5 oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning in Moses and all the prophets he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself now Jesus does give a word of rebuke but he didn't leave them. oh you're a bunch of foolish people I'm out of here he walks with them Again, the patience of Jesus. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Then Jesus remains with them, teaches them the scripture, and raises them to a more mature level where their hearts are burning within them. That's his style. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And note, I love verse 27 beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." Notice how Jesus furnishes evidence. He didn't say, look, look at the prints in my hands like he did to Thomas. Let me show you the physical evidence. He shows them the scriptural evidence. The first Bible study Jesus ever gave after his resurrection was a study on prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. And so you oh, prophecy isn't that important. Well, Jesus would beg to differ with you. Prophecy was fulfilled, beginning at Moses. Oh, man, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I've often thought I'd give anything to be able to have this recorded, to have a tape of it, to have been there, as Jesus himself begins in the Old Testament books of Moses. Probably starting out in Genesis. You remember Genesis 3? Yeah. Remember that whole thing about the serpent and the seed that would come from the woman and crush the, the head of the serpent? Yeah. Me. Wow. Hey, do you remember Genesis 22 when, when Abraham took Isaac, his son, and there was a prophecy? Yeah. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Mount Moriah. Yeah. Where did I die? Mount Moriah. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you know who he's speaking about? me. Wow. And <laughs> hey, You guys remember uh, Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb, the blood that covered the doorpost and bought their redemption. Speaking of me again, what about the Levitical sacrifices as he went through them piece by piece? The articles in the tabernacle, Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Wow. What an awesome Bible study that must have been. As Jesus spoke to them, the scriptures, the word of God, all of the things concerning himself. Hmm. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. I like this. And he indicated that he would have gone farther. They come home and Jesus just keeps walking, keeps going. He doesn't go with them. He walks as if he's going to keep going on his own. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with him. You know, Jesus' response to invitation. He didn't force himself. He didn't say, Behold, I stand at the door, and if you don't open it, I'm going to get a whole bunch of angels, and we're going to bust the door down in your life, and we're going to take over, all right? Because I'm in charge here. If you don't want Jesus, he'll keep going. He'll go further. He'll find some open heart. Now he'll knock at the door of your heart, and if you invite him, Jesus said he will come in and sup with you or have fellowship with you. But he will not barge in. He is a perfect gentleman. He has courtesy. But he responds instantly to invitation. So when you get up in the morning, you have the opportunity. You can live the life all by yourself that is set before you. Make your own plans. And, of course, we often do that, don't we? And then we get into a real jam. Oh, God! Or you can get up in the morning and say, Jesus, I invite you to walk with me, to abide with me. I'm going to walk with you today. Help me to know your word. Speak to me this morning in the pages of Scripture that I might live in the constant awareness of your fellowship and abiding with you. Your day will be pretty exciting. Make all the difference in the world. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. (laughs) What do you think they thought at that point? Just when we had him, he's gone. We just recognized him fully. We saw our eyes were open, and he's out of here. And they said to one another, I love this, did not our heart burn within us? not speaking about the food they ate, while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us. A couple things that is, it's important to notice as we finish this gospel. First of all, notice Jesus' own perspective on the scripture. He says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. You should have known what the prophets have written is true. We live in a day and age where you are seen as foolish if you believe in the Bible, right? There's an awful lot of skepticism and pessimism. And if you believe in the Bible as the word of God, you are a certifiable kook in the eyes of most people. They dismiss you as being foolish. According to Jesus, you are foolish if you don't believe it. Oh, foolish ones. Whose estimation is more important to you? Jesus' estimation or what your friend or college professor says? What does Psalm 14 say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Literally, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Sort of like if you were at a restaurant and you ate a big meal and the waitress came by with all of those enticing desserts. And you'd love to have dessert, perhaps, but you don't, I mean, you're you're stopped. And so she comes over with the train, you go, no dessert. Now, when you say no dessert, you don't mean I don't believe in the existence of dessert. For me, I have an intellectual problem with all dessert, even being on planet Earth. When you say no dessert, you are making a choice. You are saying, I don't want any. I know it exists, but I don't want any. That is the real idea behind that scripture. The fool has said in his heart, no God. Not, I don't believe God exists, but I don't want anything to do with God. That's why I've always thought, You have to plant a lie into the heart of a child to get that kid not to believe in God. He has to be trained either through education or by parents or by peers not to believe in God. It's the most natural thing. I've seen children from unbelieving homes naturally come and talk about Jesus and pray. And it's so natural. God has put that seed in their hearts. Oh, foolish ones to believe. Now, I like that. People might call me a fool, Jesus would call them foolish, because they're slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. They're saying, no God, Jesus would call them foolish. Verse 32 is also important. Where did the burning of heart come from? When did it happen? Well, it didn't happen when they spoke to Jesus. It didn't happen when they spoke to one another. It didn't happen when they shared their personal testimony. It happened when they stopped speaking and started listening, and Jesus spoke to them. And when Jesus spoke to them, their hearts burned within them. The other thing I want you to notice is what Jesus spoke to them. It was not a new revelation. It was not the new secret seven keys to success that nobody else has to understand the deeper life. It was the stuff they grew up listening to. They were Jews. They were taught in the Old Testament Scriptures. And that's what Jesus used, beginning at Moses and the prophets. He expounded all the things concerning himself. That's when their hearts burned within them. It's as if Jesus opened up the curtains, let the light in, and all those familiar texts. And they went, yeah, I get it. Oh, I see the meaning of that Scripture. Now it all makes sense, wow. It's called illumination. I have a contention about this. I contend firmly that rather than needing new revelation as something, oh, we need new revelation. No, we don't. We need a new illumination of the old revelation. That's what we need. Oh, no, we need God to speak fresh things. Now, you know what you need for your heart to really burn within you? Is for God to take the scriptures that you're familiar with and shed new light on them. It's funny. There's always people looking for some new experience. Something new that's never been uncovered before. And, of course, there's people who will say they have it. The deeper truths. Oh, yeah, you're a Christian, but you just... You really don't have what I have, brother. Brother. I have knowledge it's a little bit deeper than you have. So arrogant. Scripture says, he has given to you everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said, Lord, I pray that you'd simply open up their eyes to see what they already have. So I often say, oh, give me more of the spirit, give me more of this. Paul said, they've got it all, all spiritual riches in Christ Jesus. Father, would you just open up their eyes so they would see the storehouse of riches that they have in Christ, that they have enough, that they would use what they have. I've told you before about William Randolph Hearst. He just couldn't get enough of anything. He had the biggest house in California, the Mansion Hearst Castle. He had some of the best artwork in the world. He was interested in a piece of art that he saw in a catalog. And so he had his emissaries go find this piece of art. And he said, search high and low. I don't care what it costs. When you find it, purchase it. They searched for months all over the world. Finally, a messenger came and said, we found the painting. It's been in your basement for years. He had it and he didn't even know it. It was what they grew up. Oh, may God illuminate the scripture. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, the Bible, yeah, it's been there, done that. I want a new experience. I pray that you'd get so excited about the Scriptures. And that when we listen as God speaks them to our hearts, we would say, did not our hearts burn within us? i got to tell you, I still get this experience in my life. I'll tell you what keeps me going, the Bible, the Word of God. That's what keeps me going. I've read it a lot of times, and I still read it. And when I'm alone with God, just listening to his voice, tuning out all other voices, and just letting him speak to me through the word of God, I get pretty excited. There are sometimes it's just not containable. As the Spirit of God shows me something, oh, I've read that so many times, but, man, I've never seen it like that. Thank you, Lord. I need to hear that word from you. So, verse 33, They rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. (laughs) No more, we hoped in him. It's all over now. And I don't think they said, The Lord is risen indeed, like some liturgical services would have. The Lord! I mean, they were stoked. That's California translation for very excited. And has appeared to Simon. Oh, we always hear about this, don't we? Everybody points to the fact that Jesus had a special word for Peter. And I love that about Jesus. a special word for a failing disciple. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now when they had said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified. <laughs> he says peace and they, didn't ex- they experienced everything at that moment except peace. <laughs> Why? Because they didn't expect this. They didn't think that it really happened. And all of a sudden, the one they thought was dead is standing in the room. No knock on the door, no telegram, no phone call, just here he is. They were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed showed them his hands and his feet, but while they they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? (laughs) It's too good to be true. That's, that's what this means. It's just too good to be true. And they're, they're stunned. It's like, whoa. Uh, and Jesus goes, uh, got anything to eat? I relate to Jesus. He invited himself to eat on a few occasions. I've tried that. It hasn't worked as successfully for me, but I'll keep trying it. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning me." Did you get that? Is that your view of Scripture? If your view of Scripture is anything less, then the Old Testament is the Word of God and what was written must be literally fulfilled. You do not share the same sentiment as Jesus Christ. Every now and then I meet a Christian who says, ah, oh, why do you read the Old Testament? It's so unimportant. mean, the New Testament, that's important, but the, who cares about the Old Testament? Jesus cared a lot about it. It predicts Jesus. It lays the groundwork. It provides the shadows so that when we read the fulfillment, there is that excitement. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. That is a text of scripture that I've memorized and I quote often to the Lord. And I pray for, oh God, would you please open my understanding that I might comprehend the scriptures that God would just unlock it and illuminate it to my own mind and my own heart. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Did you get that? He didn't say, Now go witness about these things. Witnessing is not something you do, it's something you are. If you are a believer and you've received Christ, you've experienced him, you're a witness. A witness is somebody who has seen and heard truth, has responded to it. So we either are good witnesses or we are bad witnesses. It's not something you do, it is something you are. It is a natural part of life. It is not something you just memorize and put on. It's something that comes from you naturally. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit clearly we see in Acts 1. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Very important principle. We've already discussed it at length in other sections, but basically this. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. He said that in Matthew 28. At the end, sort of the same era. But then he says, don't go yet. Wait until you get the equipment necessary to do the job. The Holy Spirit must fill you and equip you with His gifts and His power. And He led them out as far as Bethany. And He lifted up His hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while He blessed them, that He was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God, amen. A note, Luke begins in the temple and Luke ends in the temple. He begins with a doubtful priest who is silenced because he does not believe when the angel gives to him the plan of Jesus. It ends with believing zealous saints worshiping the one who has come. Who has provided atonement and it was ascended into heaven. And there's always a sense of great joy. They were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now, let me ask you this Are you a little bit discouraged? Is the scripture, when you read it, dry? Is your passion, your zeal, cooled? as the flame waned a little bit on the altar of your heart? Is it a yawn session for you to think of God and to open up the Bible? Then it is necessary for you to tune out all other voices and cultivate listening to the voice of God. You say, oh, but God didn't speak like he used to. I contend that people don't listen like they used to. We've got so much going on. We've got radio. We've got television. And it's all fine and good up to a point. Even Christian radio, though. Even Christian books are simply meant to be appetizers for the real meal. Where you personally open up the Bible and have the Spirit of God reveal truth to your heart. That's where the burning of heart comes in. Maybe you have expectations and you're mad at God because he didn't redeem Israel like he should have hasn't done for you what you thought he ought to do. It's time to let God reveal his agenda to you, his plan for your life. And I pray that God would do that this week, that he would pick up your discouraged heart, that he would speak to you as you listen, cultivate that time, that sense of being alone with God and listening to his word. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. He didn't say, blessed are the casual snackers <laughs> who we'll pull down the Bible when they're bored and pop a few psalms. And... I'll tell you, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Your life can be exciting again. It can be rich with the God's presence. The possibilities for your life are unlimited. But it comes from God giving you direction through His Word. Why do we study the Bible so much? Because it's God's Word, it's God's voice, it is alive, sharper than a two-edged sword. It changes the way we think, how we make decisions. and study prophecy. Get a good book or just get the Bible and look at all of the Old Testament predictions. I'll tell you, there was a time in my life when I was going through medical training. I was a brand new believer and I was in San Bernardino County Hospital. I was going through a training program in radiology and I was confronted with a bunch of atheists and agnostics and people who thought they were God. And they just badmouthed God every day and told me what an idiot I was to believe and read the Bible. And you know what? It got to me after a while. They started pushing arguments out, and I thought, well, you know, I've never really thought about that. I don't have an answer for that. And I started getting shaken in my faith. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do some diligent study into Christianity a little, little deeper than I have. Because. If I'm believing something that isn't true, then they're right. I am an idiot. I'm just doing this for self-gratification, and it's a feel-good religion. I need something to just be spiritual with, and this is as good as anything else. But if it's not true, I don't want it. If it is true, I want to find out why. So I started studying Prophecy. And when I came out the other end, not only was I excited, but with great joy, I looked for anybody I could who would give me the time of day to share the gospel with. I've shared this so many times, but I'll tell you, it excites me so much. The predictions of Jesus. Jesus is predicted, talked about, prophesied about 300 times in the scriptures in the Old Testament about what he would be like, what he would do. Some of the things Jesus covered in that Bible study. 330 direct references or inferences about Jesus Christ. Now you know, that, that's pretty astonishing. To predict in advance there's going to be a Messiah and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born into the lineage of David. He'll be born by a virgin. Um, he will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He will be Uh, killed with criminals, he will be entombed in a rich man's grave. These are pretty substantive predictions, there's about 300 of them. A guy wrote a book called Science Speaks, his name was Peter Stoner, and he said the odds of that are mathematically impossible for it to be a coincidence. So next time an unbeliever says, oh, yeah, Jesus fulfilled a few of those. But it was just a coincidence. You can find anybody in history who fulfills a few of those. Oh, really? A book you might want to get called Science Speaks, a little paperback by Peter Stoner, mathematician from Westmont College in Santa Barbara, used to be, said the odds of one man fulfilling eight predictions would be one in ten to the 17th power. Now... Some of you have heard this, some of you haven't. 10 to the 17th power is a pretty big number. You could take that many silver dollars and fill Texas two feet thick full of that many silver dollars. If you were to pre-select one and have somebody walk into that state and find it, first chance, first try, his odds would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power for him to do that. Stoner, after seeing those mathematical probabilities, said what would the odds be of one man fulfilling sixteen predictions? He said it would be one in ten to the forty-fifth power. You'd have so many silver dollars with that big of a number that you could create a silver ball so big that from the center of that ball to the perimeter of that ball would be thirty times the distance of the earth to the sun which is 93 million miles times 30, you do the math, in all directions, you'd have that many silver dollars. Select one. Have somebody find it. The odds would be 1 in 10 to the 45th power. He said, oh, this is really exciting. What would the odds of one man in history fulfilling 48 prophecies be? He said it would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. A number so big you can't use silver dollars. There's not a universe we know big enough. So he used electrons to visualize it. And the way Stoner put it is this, if you took electrons stacked side by side and made one inch of them, you'd have so many electrons in one linear inch that if you were to count those electrons at the rate of 250 electrons per minute, it would take you 19 million years to do it. And if you took a cubic inch of electrons, that is, side by side, back to back, And you were to count that many electrons, at 250 electrons per minute it would take you 19 million years cubed or 19 million times 19 million times 19 million to count that many electrons or roughly the number of 10 to the 157th power. Go select one. Have somebody find it. His odds, 1 in 10 to the 157th power, the odds of Jesus fulfilling 48, he fulfilled 300. Do you see how inane it is for somebody to say, just a coincidence. When I started discovering the predictions in the Bible that have been fulfilled, I got so jazzed. And I have sat down with many an unbeliever, many an agnostic, many a skeptic, talking about the resurrection and fulfilled prophecy and the claims of Jesus Christ. And had many of them pray to receive Christ and their hearts burned within them as Jesus speaks to them. I pray that God and his word would speak to you and that you'd get excited about his word. That like Paul said, God would open up your understanding to know your riches in Christ so that you don't look for it anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. That you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And then you said that we should add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, love. And if these things are in us and overflow, we will never be unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow in you. To go back to the familiar things the scriptures that we have heard, and to look for that new application of the old revelation. Because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you that you've changed our lives, and we thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for the many months that we have spent in seeing this very beautiful, detailed depiction of Jesus. And now, Father, as a whole, we commit our lives to you. We think of what you might do through us. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.